You're listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. The show is sponsored by my Rebirth Tour. Come and see me on the 2nd of May in Southampton, Woking, 3rd of May, Oxford, 10th of May, Southport, 23rd of May, Owlsbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, 15th of June. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes. Only five-star reviews because I'm very sensitive about other ones. You may notice a few audio issues, but let me assure you, they disappear after the first five minutes. Something was wrong with the mic. It was Matthew Todd's fault. He was tampering with it. Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Matthew Todd is a writer, award-winning journalist and playwright. He worked for gay rights group Stonewall in the early 90s before joining Attitude magazine. He was their editor from 2008 to 2016. He's the author of the book Straight Jacket, How I'll Be Gay and Happy. Matthew Todd, welcome to Under the Skin. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I'm at university, as I tell many of my guests, because I suppose it's one of the reasons I started doing this podcast and I got a little bit of access to queer theory and like some of the students there are bang into it. And as a sort of a heterosexual white person from Essex, born in the 70s, growing up in the 80s, these are not ideas that I've particularly sought out, but I'm kind of intrigued by it. Mm. Can you give us a little bit of a precy of some of the ideas in gay politics in the last 10 years, just so we get a bit of a handle on it? I, I think my book is saying something which hasn't been said for a long time. I think a lot of queer theories in the gay movement over the last 50, 60 years has been about projecting a really positive image and constantly saying, you know, the, the word pride, you know, gay pride. Is, mm. we're, we're proud, we're so proud. And when I came out, the narrative, the thing that I was told by... When did you come out? Uh, 1990, when I was 16. I went to a little gay youth group um, and was handed a copy of Gay Times and shown a video of gay pride and told everything's fine now, you know, you're going to be OK, which I really needed to hear because I was suicidal before. It was horrendous, completely... I was completely isolated, as most LGBT kids are. Um, but then... As as I got older, they were just bombarded. It was almost like a propaganda. Like everything's great, everything's great, everything's great. You must be happy. You must be happy. You must be happy. And there's a very specific kind of um, lifestyle which comes with a lot of gay culture. You know, like the bars and the clubs and the drinking and the drugs and the sex. And I don't want to offend or upset any other gay people who might be listening to this because I was part of that. I was propagating that, and, I, and I, it worked for me. I was enjoying lots of it. I was drinking all the time and sleeping with lots and lots of people um but there was no, it felt like there was never any room to ever be to discuss any of the problems that we might have from inside the community it was always kind of i think homophobia had forced people into a corner where we were constantly like being defensive and attacking everybody out you know because we were being attacked mm. but there's not much room for saying well perhaps some of these things aren't working for us so you're saying that there was a bit of a prescribed narrative that had kind of I don't know, an upbeat sense of joy, which in a sense mm. one can understand in the 1990s, given where the relationship that that decade had to the HIV and AIDS mm. epidemic and the impact it had on the gay community, plus, as you've said, the constant combating of homophobia and the personal journey many LGBT people have been on of facing personal, familial and social oppression that a kind of sense of self-determination and positivity got kind of stitched into the narrative, I suppose. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, and it very, um, you know, like you say, with HIV and AIDS, you know, like from 83 onwards, we were having cases of AIDS here, and, you know, the press was absolutely ferocious and demonising, and I remember reading a lot of that stuff when I was young, and Section 28 came in, which was Mrs Thatcher's law that she brought in to, to basically stop uh, Labour councils from telling kids it was OK if they were gay, which meant that kids like me were bullied and the teachers felt like they couldn't say anything about it. So all the messages you were receiving in the press were... It's terrible to be gay. Um, it was constant, you, you know, you, you, the message that your life was meaningless and worthless. And, you know, I knew I was gay when I was 10 and there was no one to help. And I just thought, I have to hope and pray that this just goes away. And it didn't go away. And most of the time I would kind of keep a lid on it by pu pushing those feelings down and pretending they didn't exist. And then occasionally they would come back up again and be very upset and devastating. And then I pushed them down again. And that's when I started to develop compulsive behaviour. Like, I think food came first. Started eating lots of sugary, floury things, compulsively eating. I went into fantasy, like obsession with entertainment. And I think, and I, there's a whole chapter about that in my book. And I think it's common for people, I think, with trauma, to find their way into entertainment because it's so big, isn't it? Like pop videos are so like all-encompassing, especially when you're a kid. And I think a lot of I think a lot of that's common with a lot of uh, you know LGBT people. I've got loads of friends you know in their forties and fifties who are still absolutely obsessed by Madonna or Lady Gaga or Eurovision. You know, like Eurovision's it's well known that that's a very gay thing. Well, why is that? Why is it, you know why is it that so many of us are attracted to those things? And I do think there's something about that that when we're kids, we find a, a way kind of of pushing that pain aside by engaging with pop culture. One of the reasons this podcast is called Under the Skin is because I'm interested in the relationship between conscious mind and unconscious mind. And I often feel that the condemnation of maligned groups is a way a society deals with its own shadow, whether it's, as perhaps you could argue, in contemporary Western culture, if there were such a thing, uh, Islamophobia, prior to that forms of homophobia and condemnation of people of um, non-normal or non-cis or whatever the correct language is sexual identities and similarly it seems that like so like you have a maligned group that are different or other that are condemned because of course any individual has a sort of a spectrum of sexual feelings and sexual alliances and sexual inclinations and interests within them. And if there can be a marginalised group onto which the negative aspect of that can be projected, that's a really helpful thing for a, sort of for a culture to say there's these people, it's OK to demonise and vilify. When those, as um, through the great work of organisations like Stonewall and, and I suppose even through more, um, what do I want to say, commercial enterprises like Attitude, the perception of gay culture has altered as new facets, new strands become marginalised and condemned as that tendency and requirement to condemn the other you know, continues because people aren't dealing with their own unconscious fears. And it's interesting for me that you mentioned on a personal level that you're, you felt that you were dealing dealing with trauma and you know like I myself got lost in fantasy and addiction from a, a very young age and I feel that that was my attempt to deal with my own shadow self my own unaddressed needs and it's interesting that you say that a sort of a common stereotypical cliched perhaps um, component of gay culture is the sort of like colourful Wizard of Oz Eurovision kind of thing perhaps as a counterpoint to the feelings of isolation condemnation and darkness do you think there's any anything in that idea 100% yeah yeah, but I don't think any of it's conscious because...
mm. certainly you know when I was 10 years old 11 years old I, I would you know my uncle would come around and say sing the Wizard of Oz and I go ding dong the witch is dead you know perform for him and mm. love the attention and then I would do school plays and I'd see the Phantom of the Opera which I saw 30 times as a 15 year old I was completely mm. obsessed with it but I wasn't conscious of any of that being linked to the other experiences that I was having I, you know I wasn't conscious thinking oh I'm medicating my pain it's only when I realized that I had some really severe issues actually the same year that I became editor of Attitude that I went into recovery stopped drinking and started to actually unpick with the help of a therapist you know what had been going on for me all of my life and as I started to realize that I thought all oh, this is really common with a lot of a lot of my friends a lot of people I grew up with so you were like uh, you said the same time as you became uh, editor of Attitude magazine a very prominent magazine in gay culture mm. what you became aware of other issues well, I'd spent <clears throat> um, a long time aware of my own issues, kind of aware of other people's issues. Some, you know, people that come into the office, there's a lot of people, you know, who might be, might have, I don't know, I don't want to be nasty about them, but in any way, because they're my friends and people I care about, and, um, you know, maybe people drinking a bit too much. Um, mm. People having erratic so like normal media culture sort of normal, vibe of, yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. drugs and craziness, yeah. decadence, bit of hedonism. Uh, well, I around think there's there. a reason why people are drawn to the media, you know, because it's a, and and other things, you know, like with lots of prestige, like banking and like politics. If you go to Westminster, and I, uh, you know, interview the prime ministers and things like that, there's so many gay people that work in Parliament. It's oh, yeah. un. Oh my God! It's unbelievable. It's the biggest gay club in London. It's shocking. I mean, it's it's, it's sh that's like one of the things the Sun shocking. was saying. You go the gay into, mafia. You go don't into, remember around Peter yeah. Mandelson? Well, they're right. You go into you go into like I knew the, we could trust the Sun. Yeah, you, you go into some of the bars there, and you just see these kind of you know gay guys snogging. We're great, and then we've got a problem with it. But I was surprised to see that in Parliament. You know, it, wow, there's a huge yeah. amount of like parliamentary assistants and people who work for MPs who who are gay men. And I think there must be a reason for that. And I think all of these things that have a lot of prestige. Uh, attract people who in childhood have not felt very good about themselves be mm. they gay straight whatever they may they may be and i think that's that's the reason for it you think it. people that you think there's a relationship between hedonism decadence power and early life trauma totally. that we're saying it's just anecdotal uh, it's not a yes. social study we're, but yeah it's like that it's like that thing isn't it you say no one should be a politician who wants to be no one should be a prime be allowed to be a prime minister who wants to be because yeah. people are drawn to to politics and to power and to money and to prestige it's a very common thing i think you know, I say in the book about gay people, but I think it's probably the same for anyone who's gone through childhood trauma that we often become perfectionists and we we think, okay, well, you know, I'm the world doesn't accept me the way I am. I'm going to be amazing. I'm going to have an amazing partner. I'm going to have an amazing body. I'm going to wear amazing clothes. Mm. I'm going to have amazing parties. Wow. Have an amazing job. Whatever. It, not necessarily all of those things. I was thinking that when I was 17. I remember having a discussion with a friend at school who said it was a load of rubbish. But that is. You know, I've got so many friends who are like that. And the great thing about me being in recovery is that I meet lots of straight people who are exactly the same, who've gone through this, the same experience, perhaps for different reasons. They might have had a divorce or they might have suffered abuse or whatever it may have been in their childhood. But the pattern of the way that manifests in, in adulthood is, is very similar. And I do think, you know, without sounding like a hippie, although I'm, I'm more than happy to be called a hippie, this is the way we will, will change the world. If people start realising that it's all about our own stuff, Funnily enough, I mentioned mentioned working in the office for a long time, and sometimes I would clash with you know other people in the office. Uh, the way you do in a relationship, it's always somebody else's fault, somebody else's fault. And when I eventually realised actually 
a lot of my problems were my fault, mm. which I did in recovery. It was the most liberating thing. That How long have you been in recovery and what you're in recovery from? Um, about, uh, okay, I went in in 2008 and tried to stop drinking, didn't for quite a long time. So um, kind of uh, I haven't drunk for about three years now. Well done. Thanks. And drugs and stuff? Drugs never really, not really been a thing for me. I think I was... You know, I, like I took an, an ecstasy, like half an ecstasy twice and kind of almost had a fit or something. And you so I was too scared. That. I know, I was too scared to do it again, which I'm pleased about. Cause, but your I mean, earlier point, though, uh, Matthew, was that your your tendencies as a young man growing up were to sort of obsessively fantasise and to project. And don't you think that that tendency can sort of latch on to you know, sort of sexual behaviours, alcohol, drugs? Yeah. So, like, because my personal experience as a, a man in recovery is that is essentially sort of crept outward the territory of my recovery to encompass almost everything. I have to be careful the way I work, the way I eat, the relationships I have. Obviously, you know, sex, drugs, and alcohol sort of all have to be you know, really well. I'm abstinent from from drugs and alcohol and sex, and I have to approach in an entirely new way, precisely because, like many of the people you're describing, that are drawn drawn to sort of those power professions or those glamour professions. I have a tendency to attach to those things and to sort of ride them till the wheels come off as it were yeah i uh, one of the problem one of the problems i have with the whole talk of addiction in the nhs and, and no one ever helped me actually in the nhs or, or anywhere you know no i didn't understand addiction no one around me understood addiction most people i know don't really understand addiction but this whole narrative say with drinking oh it's alcohol it's alcohol it's not alcohol, I don't think. Like mm. you say, I have that problem with everything. I don't have an off switch, and whatever it may be, be it daydreaming, be it fantasy, be it shopping, be it bitching about people, be it sex, be it mm. drugs, be it alcohol, whatever, food, you know, any of those things, once I start, I can't stop, and it's really difficult. And so, mm. yeah, it, it kind of spreads out into into all of those areas. I was wasting money on the National Lottery today, like on the on the, on the the online thing, just 30 quid gone in 10 minutes because I couldn't stop myself. You've got to that, on some online mm. National Lottery yeah. gambling. Yeah. So you could you can do it on anything. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely anything, same. Yeah. Food or like, you know, I've like, I don't look at porn anymore because I can't handle that. I have to, like, I've really watched the way I relate to, in my case, people of the opposite gender. And I try to, yeah, and, and my work and the way I talk to people, my time, like everything has to be sort of quite mon quite carefully monitored in my own life because otherwise I escalate. What I've sort of got is I've got areas of my life where I think oh, in this area I'm sort of safe to kind of like, you know, saying when I'm doing the radio show. I mean, just before doing this, I was doing my radio show and I'm like a sort of an erratic monkey character. <laughs> and now, like, I'm sort of like, this is an opportunity for me to talk from a calm and centered uh, perspective, in hopefully intelligently, about the way we deal with ourselves. I've always been curious about identity politics both because of it's the the need for it to, for the need for identification with a particular aspect in, in of uh, one individual's nature isn't there something sort of in a, in a, well, I'm asking you is there something self-defeating about that and containing if you if you continually identify with a maligned aspect of your personality when diversity and complexity are part of all of our lives well, I think it's really, really complicated. And, you know, you might find a lot of young um, LGBT people now, you know, say they don't like labels and mm. they're defining themselves in different ways. And they're saying they reject the idea that they will be defined as gay or this or that or the other. On the other hand, I think it can be really helpful. It certainly has been for me. You know, sometimes, you know, I want to do go on a gay pride march or I want to feel identified with other gay people. I want to go to a gay bar, you know, to be around other gay people sometimes. 
on the other hand, as I've gotten older, you know, and I'm a very gay person, you know, I've written a gay play and edited a gay magazine and now written a book about being gay. But sometimes I can feel alienated by other gay people. I can certainly feel alienated by some of the kind of online Twitter culture where it just feels like people are just focused very heavily on quote unquote gay issues and not and not have a bigger picture approach to to other things and also there's a big discussion about intersectionality you know that for the gay movement quote unquote was the gay and lesbian movement now it's the lgbt and maybe lgbt plus and queer people and intersex and all these different mm. terms perhaps well i mean it has left behind to some degree you know people from you know black asian minority ethnic communities it's been a very white thing mm. so i think there's a growing understanding and awareness you know that absolutely we need to you know it needs to be about black people and asian people and you know women and trans people and not just about white white gay men which it has been for a long time but that is changing i think is it one of the things i learned in my little old university when i was listening my artist was that part of the incorporation of you know, sort of gay people into the mainstream was kind of an economic idea. That as long as you can behave like a good consumer, you're no threat to mainstream America, and we can in fact use our tolerance, in inverted commas, to further malign communities that have different attitudes to gender and sexuality, i.e. that the inclusion of uh, the gay man into the mainstream, which may very well be temporary before bigotry and prejudice reassert, is another way of saying, for example, that uh, sort of, uh, Muslim communities have uh, the different attitudes and it's a, a way of justifying our um, sort of um, vilification of their otherness, as it were. That's an interesting thing I heard. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, um, you know, like I said, around 1988, we had Section 28 and all this thing, like intense homophobia. And I think it was 1990. I believe that Stonewall was started, and I think in the what early, was Stonewall? It was a bunch. Well, after Section Twenty Eight happened, which was this terrible law, and you know the gay saying don't promote gayness at yeah, schools. Yeah, a local like, authority don't have them books like uh, Janet lives with Peter and Dave. Yes, a local authority cannot uh, be seen to promote homosexuality as uh, a normal family relationship. Normal family relationship. Um, the words in wording is slightly different, but essentially, you know, you can't say that to be gay is normal. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher made a big speech about it, saying that. Children were being taught that it was they had an inalienable right to be gay and how awful that was, you know. And my, and my friends, you know, I've got friends that I was at school with, and you know, one of them, his boyfriend took his own life. You know, there's lots of that. There's of course, a the high know. suicide rate amongst uh, uh, gay men, and I, and I absolutely think, that, you know, that is, you know, result of growing up hearing that as a massive drugs problem at the moment. Maybe we can come on to that a bit later on. Um, but um, what you were saying about money, yes, but, but Stonewall was a group of people like Ian McKellen and other people, a woman called Lisa Power, some, LG, some gay and lesbian people that came together to say we need to have a different approach. We need to be like um, taken seriously politically and, and able to have a, a serious group that can go in and speak to right. politicians. And they, well, they visible and a bit more aggressive. Yeah, well, well, there was a kind of there was a, there was another kind of there was Peter Tatchell and a group called Outrage who were a bit more kind of militant, um, a bit more militant. Yeah, because I like that Peter yeah, Tatchell. I've yeah, met him oh, God, and he's, he's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. Why is it? Like, sorry to interrupt sorry. you in your midstream, and I would like to carry on that point. But like, how? come with some of the young LGBT people now that like Peter Tatchell's been no platform and stuff what's going on um, I thought he's like oh isn't he goodness. Nelson Mandela of like LGBT people I've met him he's well smart he's funny he's had his head kicked in by Mugabe mm. a couple of times what more do you bloody well want like what what, what, what happened 
Oh my goodness! Well, that's it's massively complicated oh, and God, sensitive and controversial. But I think it's because there is a group of uh, feminists. Uh, I think they're called trans exclusionary radical feminists, who reject the I, reject trans identity. They don't believe that trans women are women. They believe that they are men, and that you, you cannot become a woman, or you can't have the surgery. You know, right? And, you, you know, if you are born a man, that's it. And uh, the trans community have tried. We're saying to, like, I'm a woman. You can't just join a woman through surgery. That sort of thing. Yeah, or just identity. You know, because trans people would would say that you know the surgery isn't the be all and end all. It's not you're not the right. most important thing um the trans community and the lgbt community to some degree have reacted against that and tried to say well you know someone they consider to be a hater should not be allowed to have a platform at universities and it's very very controversial and rages from either side um and peter tatchell signed a letter just saying he didn't agree with no platforming he's been an amazing trans uh, supporter over the years but he signed this letter a lot of people think he was naive to do so and he shouldn't have done so and so um there was quite a lot of uh, anger towards him but yeah i, I mean it, it sounds kind of like a scary th- i mean i don't know anything i don't know enough about it and the whole mm. point of this podcast is for, for me to learn so perhaps i should you know to talk to someone who's deeply into that perspective uh, but it, like identity politics is something that's very much become a mainstream concern like uh, it, uh, with uh, caitlin Jenna, mm. is it like this has become a sort of a flashpoint for mainstream populist understanding of these issues? Why is that? Just because it's a, a visible figure? Yeah, a high-profile, famous person transitioning. You know, it just has. I think there's been a kind of wave of awareness, and people like my friend Paris Lee, who's an amazing um, trans woman who was the first transgender person to ever be on Question Time, and she's incredible. I absolutely love her. Lots of people suddenly coming up into the you know the public arena and talking about the issue, and I think maybe we were we were with trans issues where where we might have been twenty or thirty years ago with with gay issues that you know people are coming out more it's more visible right the numbers the numbers of people transitioning is going sky high wow it's really like increasing and I think there's more you know they can't cope with you know the numbers of people that are wanting referrals to the clinics and things so I think that's you know exciting in a way and you know really liberating for people to feel that you know that they can you know live in the way they they feel they want to someone said to me the other day that really what we is required is that we have an attitude of being like so oh, i don't really understand but i don't like i'm not bothered you know, like you know that sort of this is a, like there it's an areas of complexity around identity that demand of people that are not directly affected or involved to just go yeah, well, like because even the word tolerance is a complex yeah, word of I like, like this word. is annoying yeah. but i will put up with it you know sort yeah. of like and it has to be like wow i just don't understand and people are free to be who they want to be Absolutely. beyond systems of categorization which are to a, to a degree arbitrary and certainly exaggerated i mean like like any of us, even regardless, even if you have like sort of co- conventional, sec- you know, sort of heterosexual, um, like if you're a conventional heterosexual, as it were, like m- me, like I still within the gender world have been somewhat amorphous and fluid, and probably would have been more so had I not grown up in Essex in the 70s and 80s, where like I was downloaded very particular attitudes mm. about what was acceptable, and I suppose like 
I found performance was a way where I could be like, you know, like sort of the way I sort of dressed early in my career was kind of costume, you know, like I was an eyeliner, haircut, tight clothes, mm. chains, buckles and belts and silvery stuff everywhere. It was kind a kind of, camp. of, it was super camp. Mm. And I like, when I look at stuff, I was talking differently and it was very much like, I am this thing, I'm this mm. entity. And some of it was about androgyny, certainly. Mm. You know, like it was about a defiance of those systems of categorization of this is what it is to be a, ma- a white male from Essex. Like, well, I think you're of that generation, aren't you? Though? David Beckham, you know, uh, he, gave, he, he gave an interview and was shot for the cover of Attitude in 2002. And uh, it was the World Cup. He was the captain of the England team. And that was a big deal. That kind were you of editor thing. then? No, I wasn't. I, was, I think I was deputy editor at the time mm. under my previous editor, Adam Matero. Who was, was that a buzz? Great. Was that exciting oh, to be there goodness, when David yeah. Beckham's I, on the cover? I wasn't the shoot, but yeah, it was an incredible time. It really because that's like it. he's the main, mainstream icon. Yeah, this he's is a global icon and he, he's a symbol of modern masculinity. And I think it really sent out a signal to you know to tam- the readers of tabloids to men that you know it's okay to be relaxed about gay people we're not you know a threat or the enemy maybe the way we were you know portrayed as 15 years before that so it was a real turning point i think you know blair had been in for a few years at the time it felt very positive you know that things were you know the the political kind of uh, system was was in terms of gay people was changing and the laws were like changing so it was a really amazing time oh is it safe to say that like as a that generally lgbt issues are improving and like you said like on a personal level you were bullied at school do you think that kind of thing is less likely to happen now do you think it's still happening is it still a concern of yours definitely better um definitely improving there when talking about schools there are lots of schools that have uh you know, um, anti-homophobic bullying policies. But there's still huge problems. I mean, I'm just thinking a few weeks ago in one week, there was uh, there was a case of a young man, I think it was 23-year-old, who held hands with his partner in a pub in Peckham and he was glassed. That same week, there was a report of a young boy, I think he was 14 or 15 in Scotland, who had killed himself because he was being bullied for being gay. That same week, there was... Um, a, a father who uh, released a picture to the press of his daughter on what would have been her 18th birthday of her in hospital before he turned up a life support machine when she was 16 because she tried to, she'd killed herself because she was being bullied because she had sexual feelings for you know she thought she might be a lesbian and that same week as well was the week that Jenny Murray wrote in the Sunday Times that trans women aren't real women you know that, and I think sort of that kind of a week and actually the same week was the week that the George Michael's coroner's report came out and I just thought that was a very intense week and a kind of microcosm in a way of some of the issues that that we face you know my book I wrote my book because we have disproportionate numbers of of people with addictions with depression with anxiety the suicide rate is higher in LGBT people still now people still feel isolated there is a chronic drugs problem amongst some gay and bisexual men at the moment yeah I heard this what's going on with that that crystal meth thing crystal meth methadone G um, people are in some people you know and it's really important to say most gay men don't take gay and bisexual men do not take drugs but what is this a young urban sounds kind of exciting oh it's not it's young and older you know I interviewed a guy at Freedom Health Dr Sean Cummings and he uh, he's a gay private GP and he I saw him recently again he was telling me he thinks it's getting worse lots of people in their 40s and 50s who you know straight people have a, a narrative of maybe trying drugs finding a drug of choice in their 20s and then, and then either getting into trouble or going into recovery or giving up because they had kids maybe in their mid 30s mm. whereas he's seeing a lot of gay men who haven't taken drugs but then start in their 40s and 50s because they're in this culture and end up really struggling and, and crystal meth makes 
people psychotic, makes people really, really paranoid. There's lots of suicides. You know, it's, it's really it's not uncommon at all on Facebook to see it. Did you ever done any? No, I've never really. No, I mean, like I say, like come on, mate, well, what's you well, doing? Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you know, like if these drugs had been around when I was you know, a bit younger before I found recovery, I, I probably would be dead now because I would yeah, not I have been able to stop myself. In the attitude days, were you part of, a, like, as I've always been a bit envious of that. I mean, it seems a bit stupid saying it when you're talking about the terrible, terrible negative consequences of the disease of addiction. But like, I, I've always been somewhat envious of, envious of the decadence that can exist in male, same-sex hedonism land. Seems like it may have been a real trip. Well, I'm sure lots of people do romanticise it, and I think this is a controversial thing. And the kind of what my book is about, saying that it's not hedonism and exciting and wonderful. It's actually addiction, carnage, addiction and trauma. You know, mm. this, that's what I was saying about when I came out. There was this kind of cultural narrative of which attitude has been a part. Right, let's has, go, like, let's yeah, have it. Let's all each other great, up. And we're we're all out partying all the time because we're fabulous and we have an amazing life. I mean, it's interesting to me that attitude actually was going to be called fabulous. That's what it was going to be called before they called it attitude. You know, this idea that we're partying all the time, we're having a great time. And I think actually the reality is we're a huge community of really traumatised people medicating pain in with sex, drugs and, and mm. alcohol and mm. itchiness and all the rest right, of it. And, the not, and, and not everyone, again, because, you know, the community can be amazing. Yeah, and, do you know, you so know like, healthy gay people that are like, oh, oh yeah. wicked child, I've never had any problem, I come right out. I know lots straight of out of traps, crash, bang, wallop, it's been a hoot. I know loads of healthy gay people, but I don't know many gay people who've not struggled with that trauma and, and shame. Mm. And there's a, there's a therapist um, called Dr. Joe Court who used to write for Attitude, and he in one of his books he says um, that we are victims of covert cultural abuse. So Covert cultural abuse, what do you think that means? Well, it means that, that society abu abuses us, it, it shames us. It, you know, there's, there's, pre there's not many... You couldn't really find many LGBT people who've grown up feeling receiving messages that it's okay to be who they are. We all have those messages. It's bad. You can't simply you, you can't be what you are. You cannot be who you are. And most of us have that experience of, for some time, pressing it down. And I remember when I was at Attitude, I wanted to often talk about the experience of kids or bullying at schools. And no one in the office ever wanted to talk about it. It was a really prickly subject that everyone always wanted to move on from. And I think that's because it's so painful. We do our best. People don't to want to talk it. about that. Certainly not because when it's that, contrary to the idea of now is, I've burst out and it's fabulous. Well, I think it's just so painful certainly i mean it is being talked about now because bullying is more on the agenda but back then even in our office amongst us working in this gay magazine it was a very painful thing to talk about and, and, and what can you do and it's just you know i've spent my whole life trying to get away from how awful that was and now i'm in this kind of promised land i just want to enjoy it mm. but so, do you think people weren't you know so you don't think it was some sort of studio 54 hedonistic bronzed oily on the back of an horse no. noshing someone off right laugh well, it was actually a bit traumatized and terrible well you know you know what it's like when you're in uh, i had the most amazing times in gay clubs you know there's sometimes i was thinking the other day if i could just spend the rest of my life in a gay club and have dinner there and not have to sleep and just live that way for the next 40 years who wouldn't want to do that i would but you know it had consequences there were amazing times i, I had out and i'm sure you know when you when you live in that kind of crazy crazy hedonistic life it's, it can be amazing i've had some amazing nights been to amazing clubs with amazing people all the rest of it but you know it wears you out eventually doesn't it a lot of addictive behaviors are built on random rewards you know like yeah. you'll do something 10 times and then sort of two or three times out of those 10 times it'll be really brilliant and it sort of so it creates like oh I better keep doing this it might be one of the good two or three times coming up yeah you know so sort of you feel trapped in sort of hedonism
Here is an advert in the middle of the show. For so long now, little thought has gone into manufacturing socks. Those days are thankfully over. Four years ago, two guys set out to rethink things in pursuit of extreme comfort. What drove these men? After spending two years fixing all the things they didn't like about conventional socks, and God knows there must have been enough, the end bit. God, that stings, doesn't it? Bombas was born. Bombas offers premium socks equipped with seven substantial improvements to the ordinary sock, including, and I think importantly, a reinforced footbed built for extreme comfort and a Y-stitched heel that cups the back of your foot. I'm wearing a sock right now. The back of my foot is flailing around freely. Oh, there it's gone. It's just wandered out of the bloody studio. Why wasn't I wearing my bloody Bombas socks? In fact, Bombas socks are such game changers that customers overwhelmingly claim they're the most comfortable socks they've ever worn. But best of all, and this is important, for every pair of socks Bombas sells, they donate a pair to those in need. Since socks are the most requested item in homeless shelters, this small article of clothing can make a big difference. And that is true, because as you know, I'm a great, uh, kind person, always. If I'm not down a homeless shelter helping people, I'm helping them via the sock world as I am now. And let me tell you, they're always after a pair of socks. Why, one homeless fellow just pulled my sock off there and then. Bombas already donated two million pairs. If you need new socks, you can't go wrong with Bombas. Go to bombas.com forward slash brand to get 20% off your first order, knowing that even doing that will be helping a homeless person. You'll love your Bombas socks or your money back guaranteed. You've nothing to lose. That's bombas.com forward slash brand. And now that advert finished... Let's go back to the show and this quite thorough interview. Now, here's the thing that might sound ins- insensitive, so you can help me through it. I've always felt that myself, like, self, like, like I'm not good enough and like I can't be who I am. And mm. I felt, cra- you know, like, so, but like, I don't have a, uh, my sexuality, well, possibly mm. my sexuality has been part mm. of it because I've had you know, real issues around promiscuity and that kind of stuff. Sex addiction, I suppose you'd call it. Like, so, is this. A, something that's common to us as human beings and in fact perhaps we could you know do you think i sometimes think as i see that lgbt thing getting more and more initial letters mm, everybody on everybody eventually eventually it? should be bloody everybody mm. and that the, the old like because really what you want to crack is the idea that there is some centralized group that are the dominant cultural narrative that get to exclude and include and judge and value and evaluate and that we should all say well this seems to be these things called human beings <laughs> there's limitless variety within it and we should let people crack on with what they're doing I think I go on about this many, many times in the book that you know we don't gay people don't have um, dibs on on traumatic childhoods and you know maybe addiction and problematic lives. I think anyone, any any young person, if you're told for whatever reason you're frightened, overwhelmingly frightened, or you're traumatized, or you're abused, or you have your emotional development disrupted in some way, maybe even divorce or a parent dying or living in poverty, you know, there's a correlation between poverty Mm -hmm. and addiction. Any of those things can really disrupt your emotional development and when that happens regardless whether you're gay straight trans cisgendered whatever you may be um there's a similar outcome you know like you say low self-esteem not feeling good enough often not feeling attractive uh then then reacting to that by trying to be perfect trying Mm. to be very successful trying maybe you know to be nasty to people because that makes you feel better about yourself if you don't feel very good about yourself so that's just common to anyone who's who's been traumatized and i imagine it's probably similar you know i don't know because i'm not you know i'm a white guy but imagine if you grow up in a society which is very racist where you're being told constantly you know you're not welcome you're not good enough you're not acceptable you're not part of the, the group i imagine that probably is a similar effect for for those people too most muslim people or black people i talk to in the uk or african-americans say 
they've had experience. Like you think, oh, it's all right now, isn't it? And like they go, nah, everyone will tell you. <laughs> like these are the things that have happened that are not okay. And I suppose it's probably similar coming from like a, identifying as you do. What we all, everybody needs to do is work on what's going on with me. Why do I feel this way? Uh. What's happened to me? These people have done this to me. I need to make peace with it myself and work on myself. And, I, and that's where I think it kind of ripples out to to everybody because I do think that's why the world's in such a fucked up place. I think you're right actually there, Matthew. I think like, sort of the part on one level is like, yeah, we as individuals, regardless of how we identify, have a duty to understand who we are and what's motivating us and where our personal trauma lies, where our shame lies and how we might be demonstrating or exhibiting that behaviour. And then with our relations to one another, love people and yeah. don't try to say that, control or label them. I say that in my book, you know, I, you know it's, a, it's a cliche, isn't it? And it's considered to be like a Hallmark Cards thing. You know, you're not allowed to just say these simple things. But, you know, it's about, life is about accepting who you are, learning to love yourself, quote unquote, and then being able to love other people. And if you, mm. if you are okay with yourself, you have less problems with other people. When I'm feeling good about myself, I don't want to push tourists down the escalators. When I, when I feel <laughs> really angry, I'm like... Argh! You know, I just I take yeah. it out other people. It's never about them. It's always about how I feel. And mm. so there was a clip a couple of years ago I saw, I think on New Year's Eve, some guy um, was on a tube in London, and there were I think some some uh, presumably gay guy who was dressed in like a flamboyant way, and the guy started screaming and shouting and being really homophobic, and everyone was sharing it about how awful it was, and it was awful. It was really horrible to watch, but it really struck me that this wasn't. I'm not saying he wasn't prejudiced, I'm sure he was, but it wasn't really about that. It was probably about what was going on in his life, what was poverty is, I don't know, yeah. his relationship, how he felt about himself. Did he have a job? Did he have this? Because you could see that anger was there and it would have come out in some other way. And I think that's why I was, sometimes I have a bit of a frustration. I love my community, but... I think we need to really, we spend a lot of time arguing amongst ourselves and obsessing, like you say, about identity politics. And I think we need to be focusing on, on bigger things like poverty, you know, like supporting the NHS. You know, a lot because we have, you know, higher levels of mental health problems, we're going to need the NHS. There's lots of people living with HIV. We need the NHS to, to be safe. Yes, it's interesting how it's quite prescriptive what we're meant to care about and what different social groups. I mean, the, the, the taxonomies themselves are, as I suppose they always will be, are restrictive and prohibitive. And those are the kind of labels that we should be uh, defying and denying. Can we get into your personal life a bit? Well, when you were a kid, were you tell me about like on a sort of more personal level all the bullying and all that sort of stuff um like just feeling like an alien feeling like i didn't fit in feeling very different from everybody else certainly different from other boys um and then not being able to really necessarily always get on with the girls either and then starting hearing all these messages messages these negative messages and then when i was 10 i just had this light bolt uh lightning moment where i just thought oh that that's what it, this is. I don't know. I think it just you know just some co conscious. I think I must have been hearing you know like kids in the playground are very homophobic, aren't they? They heard gay and, yeah. and queer and all the rest of it. And it's completely I thought, standard. Oh yeah, it's just that's just what happens. And I remember thinking, oh that's me, that's me. And I remember really like panicking and just thinking, okay, we need to make sure people don't know about this. Um, but I re I reacted in a in a, which I think is quite a common thing. I reacted in a way. I you know. I wasn't a big tough kid mm. and I couldn't get into fights so I would be gobby and mouthy and funny and dramatic and camp and when I was at secondary school I used to run around dressing up as Madonna and put on shows and blow kisses at people and, and, and really make people you know, think of me as a, as a, as a freak and 
you know, and I hated it and I loved it and I hated it. I did all of this it. as well. Well, well yeah, because you went through all stuff. All of the kissing stuff. Yeah, I was basically doing the exact that. same thing. Yeah. A sense of alienation and disownership of the self. And in a way, that's kind of the very definition of trauma. Do you talk mm. about a trauma? Like, I've noticed that it seems to be a significant part of your personal lexicon, the, the idea of trauma. And it's something I'm learning about in relationship to addiction. That at some point, if you become unacceptable to yourself, there is a severance, there is a breakdown. And whatever prism you want to deal with it through, whether it's through sort of substance misuse, or, mm. or uh, issues with your own sexuality or your relationship with society's issues with your sexuality, at some point there needs to be a realignment and acceptance, a, yeah. tra a, tra a transition how, to, to how you regard yourself. There's a guy called Michael Hobbs or Hobbs who wrote, an American guy who wrote an article in the Huffington Post recently about, um, I think it was called The Epidemic of Gay Loneliness, about how, why is it that we've got all these rights and things are so much better for gay people, but so many gay men are, are still lonely. Now, I would always say it's really important to remember I know so many people in really happy, successful couples and relationships, gay people, lesbians, everybody. You know, some are married, some are not, some are in open relationships, some are monogamous, and lots of great I mean, people being together for 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it may be. But there are lots of us who struggle with relationships, and I think that's when you are so traumatized and you're, you've taken in these mm. messages to you, the center of yourself that you're not acceptable, you do all of these other things are about getting away from that, not feeling that. So the alcohol, the drugs, the sex, the crazy behavior, the bitchiness, whatever it may be. And so when you want to have a relationship with somebody else, it's very difficult because it's like you're in a Russian doll. You're the, cent the little tiny thing in a Russian doll with all these other shells around you. And how can you get to the real person? Because a real relationship is about that inner part of you connecting with the inner part of somebody else. Yes. And I think that's why sometimes it can be difficult. It certainly has been for me. I, I've really struggled with relationships. It's really hard. It's something I'm still in therapy for and still working on. There was a guy who used to write a column, a dating column in Attitude, and I remember, remember very vividly he, he said about, um, there was a guy he met, he was both really into each other. They had a few dates, very passionate and intense, really thought this is someone I'm going to make a go of it with. And suddenly when they got to that point, the guy ran off, couldn't cope with it, just ran, ran away, ran away, ran away, stopped returning the calls. And that's common with lots of straight people too. And I think that's when you get, you know, the, Rus the, the, the Russian doll analogy, some of those shells kind of go down, you're getting closer to the real person, mm. and you get to that, very close to that real person that's really traumatised and carrying all that pain and shame from, you know, from 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you just can't handle it. And you go, I cannot cope with this, I have to leave this relationship, I can't be in this relationship. And I think that's what happens. Yeah, I think that is very common, and obviously I can't speak to the the how it would be additionally affected if there was a level of rejection that was endorsed by social prejudice, but I know that my own issues with intimacy, intimacy mm. have been quite... It's, it's very hard to let people in, and there have been points in relationships where I think, oh, this is just too painful to get to know someone. Yeah, to totally. Get to know it's, a, it's a risk, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, that gamble, I don't like it. Are you in a relationship now? No. I, I a long, you know, quite a long time ago, I was in a relationship where I felt like I was very much in love, and I think a similar thing happened when we got very close, and he freaked out and started cheating on me, and it just was complete chaos. And you know, we were both very young, and I don't blame him, but I found it really difficult since then, and I'm, I'm working on it now. Mm. But you know, is that what you want? Not, a monogamous oh, relationship? God, um, I'd love to have. A, well, yeah, definitely love to have a relationship. I'd like to have a monogamous relationship. It, feels like it can be quite hard to find that and it would be a night I don't want to be 
cheated on and there are lots of people who do want monogamous relationships for sure do you not think monogamy is another one of those sort of cultural and social norms that lots of people would say so but i you know I, that's what i would want i don't want to be i've slept with most, most of london and yeah i don't need to sleep i've done with, the other half yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know i don't need you know i, I mean I've got I'm, them covered i mean I, I you know i i'm fairly open about the fact that i st- you know that's still it's still an issue for me it's still a problem for me i would really sex like, addiction yeah compulsive sex how are you going to get out of that this. well you know you have to work through these things one by one don't you so i'm not in the book i'm not going all these terrible gay people you know and i'm cured and i'm happy and everything's great for me that's not the case i, I wrote it because i felt like i was struggling a lot of other people were struggling why do you think it's help. a problem what the sexual stuff? Mm. Well, because I know that I had definitely used sex as a way of anesthetizing myself, yeah. and you know, when I was dumped in this relationship, I thought, okay, well, I don't want to feel that pain anymore. I don't want to get close to everybody, so I'll just put a revolving door on my flat door and just have you know, like the deli counter, you know, now serving number twenty-eight. You know, it's bing, good that you bing, did bing. that much admin. Yeah, just just just, <laughs> just kick the door off. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No door. Just have one of those kind of chains hanging down. <laughs> yeah, so, so just was. I, you, I didn't realise I was doing that really, but you were that is yourself. what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, addiction, like it's, it's good when we transition to addiction because I get to really pump my little chest up, right? Because like, what I think is, is like there's a lot of the, the, the typical imagery and the image systems around addiction is that it's kind of demonic or that it's a disease. And like you know, and you know, it's the World Health Organization said alcoholism is a disease some time ago. But I often think in my personal experience of addiction is that it comes like a mobster friend. In my times of trauma and pain, addiction puts its arm around me and goes, Don't worry, we've got this. And like, you know, when I go through pain or rejection or loneliness, that's when addiction kicks in and goes, we'll take care of this, no problem. When I go through pain of breakup in relationships, you know, I'm a, I've been 14 years, one day at a time, clean from drugs and alcohol. But like sex addiction, that's still something I, I have to focus on that. Like I have to focus I, one day at a time, don't look at pornography, one day at a time, make sure that I treat people of the opposite gender in a way that's not... I try not to unconsciously objectify or manipulate. I try to really be observant of that. That stuff seems very, very local for me. And the reason I don't do it is because, like, you know, I, I'm a big 12-step person. Me, I look at it like, you know, I have the desire to stop. I believe it's possible to change. I know that on my own I, I'd be screwed. So, like, I have to get help from others and hand over my will to, in my case, a power greater than myself. And I've seen it sort of work continually in my life and the life of others. But, like, the sex or the sex, S issues, as people in the know say, that's where it's it's hard because it's, you know, in your community and in the particular demographic that I was living in, it's like not can really considered a problem. It's like if you're a gay man, you're attractive and you're affluent. Why not? You know, and like particular and, and I and additionally, other gay men that I've spoken to have said there's not the additional consideration that the person that you're sleeping with is a different gender and may, on that basis, have a different attitude to the role of sex in their lives. You know, like, I, I think it's a very, it must be very difficult to moderate because it is seen as acceptable, it's pleasurable, who's the victim type thing. Yeah, well, there's a lot there, isn't there, that, um, you know, I think sex and food are two specific addictions, and a lot of people would say that sex is not an addiction, and there's a lot of people in the, in the gay community would say that's not the case. I, I think it, anything that changes the way you feel can be mm. become addictive. Um, but, with you know, with alcohol and drugs, you can just stop them. It's quite easy to, to stop them and, and never do them again, you know, in, if you get help and all the rest of it, not making light of how hard it can be, but it's relatively easy, isn't it, to stay away, away from bars. Yeah. Yeah. But with sex and food, you need to eat 
and it's a natural thing to to have sex. So mm. it's very difficult because it's about what happens when. One of the reasons I didn't realise I had a problem with alcohol was because I thought, well, I'm not drinking in the morning and I'm not drinking mm. in parks or in a paper bag. But I didn't realise it's about can you stop once you've started? And, mm. I think, and I can't really, you know, there were times when I would spend the whole weekend, you know, sitting at home watching porn and talking to people on there was an, uh, a website called Gaydar. Yeah, it takes me back. It was and it was horrendous. But there's a, but what you were saying about the difficulty maybe in the gay community, there's a lot of, a lot of people who would absolutely totally disagree with what I'm saying and I totally respect their opinion about it. And they would say it's a great thing, celebrate, you know, the fact that gay men can have sexual freedom. But I would say you know, you can have too much of a good thing, can't you? Mm. You know, if you eat chocolate cake the whole time, eventually you're going to get fat or throw up or you fall over dead from a heart attack. And I just think, for me, it's not even about any of the the health issues. It's just the fact that it just kind of, you know, zapped my soul, you know. Yeah, where does it leave you afterwards? Well, I, just, I also think there's a problem. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned objectification. That's something, you know, you would often see, you'd often see in, in like newspapers like The Guardian talk about the objectification of women. You very rarely see it about men and you very rarely ever see it from a gay perspective. Now, I realise I am a hypocrite to some degree because it was the editor of Attitude that puts lots of really sexy men with no shirt on on the cover, which is, you know, I enjoyed that as much as anybody else. Um, but, you know, there is an issue because I think when you objectify someone, they become an object. It's quite mm. hard to have a relationship with an object. Mm. And I meet, I've met a lot of gay men, a lot, I mean, all the time. Well, I run an event called A Change of Scene at the 56 Dean Street Sexual Health Clinic where we just have a discussion group once a month for gay and bisexual men. And you'll see men coming with all this bravado about, yeah, you know, sleeping with hundreds of people. It's all, all great. But then when you get underneath it and people say, well, actually, what I really want is a relationship. I mean, I, I know somebody who sadly uh, took his own life and he was on the drugs as so many of us are and was you know sleeping with huge amounts well sleeping with lots of people and he said that what he really wanted was just somebody to cuddle up on the sofa with and watch tv but he felt like that was a radical thing to to want in in gay culture and it's a real shame because i think there's so many people that actually want that i think majority of us want a relationship whoever we are ultimately but it's considered to be heteronormative it's by some people it's considered to be a bit old-fashioned and a bit maybe a bit conservative but i think we need to have this discussion we need to talk about it i mean when I go on to apps like Grinder, and I'm certainly not a saint, and I can be just as bad, but you see, when I'm thinking about how some people would say there's no such thing as sex addiction, and nothing can ever be bad, and nothing can ever be criticised, or nothing can ever be bad for you, but sometimes I see these young guys who will say, you know, I'll give you my address, the door's open, uh, I'll be over the sofa, just come in, do what you want, don't care who you are. I mean, that's very common. I see that all the time. There's lots of that, lots of that happening, and, it's, and I think it's self-harm. It, it is, just, I it's think. It's just a way of hurting yourself. It's I think just the way it of is. And I think straight people have had that discussion a long time ago. You know, if you, if, even if a man does that, a straight man or a straight woman does that, I think we would all go, oh, God, that's someone in a certain amount of pain. It's so common amongst gay and bisexual men that, and it's been a taboo to, to, to question it. But I think we need to have that discussion because it's really hurting people. And I think it goes hand in hand with people mm. using those drugs that end up killing people. It's interesting because I suppose because it is an idea that seems to come from a puritanical or as you said conservative perspective yes. but I suppose because there's been necessary defiance and necessary assertiveness for the right for people to express their sexuality and not to have it restricted or controlled that that has led to a kind of hedonism and it now becomes a kind of new heresy to say oh that might not be bloody good for you and like it's something I experienced as a person that was living like had a lifestyle and social position that afforded me uh, the, uh, a lot of sexual 
natural opportunity. It was only like, you know, that thing about like open door policy, that was very kind of re resonant and remnant re yeah, of, of what like the way that I was living. Um, it's in the end when I said asked you who's the victim, you know, me for a kickoff. Like I think in the end, it's very uh, alienating and as you say, self-harming. Like the like, and, and from a personal perspective, I think I'd lost the ability to understand what serenity was, what calmness was, what mm. tranquility was, what self-care was, what it was to be calm and to not to use other people or to or to use myself or my own sexual energy in a profligate way. Mm. And that objectification, that's a very interesting byproduct of a consumer. Because the thing I suppose with attitude is it was very very glamorous or mm. it is a very glamorous magazine and that's part of the dominant mil social milieu that is consumerism yeah. commodification bodies can be consumed human beings can be consumed sex can be consumed women can be consumed and that, that's not a spiritual way to live is it no and it, but it's very hard to talk about these things because and i, I would have shut down 20 years ago i would have thought oh shut up you hippie <laughs> so it's very hard because we're so conditioned aren't we you know the media from our whole experience of thinking that this is the way it is and yeah and, and we were talking about earlier on about how you know, I think gay culture and the, the public's perception of gay people changed because businesses realised that there was money to be made from the quote-unquote right. pound. When in the reality is actually, I think there's a huge amount of poverty in the LGBT community that we don't we don't talk about, which we need to talk about. Um, and that's how you know the bars came up, and magazines like Attitude came about. And attitude has changed, and I tried to make it more politically aware. And there's a great team there at the moment. But all of these things happened within within the culture, and and every, everything everything you do is is about you know like hits, be it a radio station or an internet or this or that, or, you know, selling magazines or selling this, selling that. You know, you if you get some of the gay magazines, you open them up, it's just. Sex clubs, saunas, adverts for underwear brands and right. stuff, and that—that's kind of yeah, it's kind of all it is. And some people love that, but but I see young people coming out and thinking, well, that's all there is to this culture, and mm. that's not good because it's not good at this time because there's a need for a different kind of awareness. I would have thought. Well, we need a revolution, don't we? Seems that that would be helpful. So you seem to be approaching it primarily from a sort of a spiritual and a sort of self-help perspective as opposed to a sort of a legal campaigning perspective. Do you think that there's sort of like laws that need to be changed? Do you think, do you think much needs to have at a legislative, administrative level? Do you think the governments in the US and the UK should be doing more to, to you know, quote-unquote, normalise gay culture? Or do you think that this is more, is, is your interest more to do with I don't know, spirituality and inner life? Well, yeah, the latter. I mean, uh, mm. I think there's still, you know, like Trump's in, isn't he? So who knows what's going to happen, you know? Whether we'll all be, you know, frazzled within a month or something, um, but and there obviously there are different situations all over the world. I was really pleased to have we, we got Prince William onto the cover of Attitude last year, and there are you know many Commonwealth countries where it's still illegal to be gay, so it's a horrendous situation still around the world, and a lot of that is because of British colonial laws that were brought in and Christianity and so. I know yeah, they didn't even have those ideas. We no, gave them those ideas. We did. Yeah, we've got this idea. Go on, homophobia. So those things need to be. Looked at it's a it's a slog you know and it can be exhausting and I think that's a, a a thing as well you know it can it can be hard I think that's a narrative you're never allowed to say oh God some of this is really painful I find it really you know actually one of the most painful things was during my time I asked you to interview a lot of parents whose kids had been bullied a lot of the time they'd killed themselves it's happening all the time the media does not care I think they think to talk about it is to somehow sexualize kids inappropriately um you oh, know yeah. like i, I had a, a emailed the editor of a very well-known news program a few years ago when i interviewed some parents and said can you do something about this and he said 
well, we're already doing school bullying, but it's different because if you're being bullied at school, maybe because you've got red hair, and I'm not put, you know, dismissing that because it could be really horrendous, but if you go home and maybe your parents have red hair or you can talk about them and you can be, you know, no one's going to not know you don't have red hair. If you're, if you're gay, often I was certainly bullied before I knew I was gay. People were calling me camp and perf and all the rest of it, as is often the case with us. You might not be out to yourself. You might not feel able to tell the teacher. You might not be able to go home and tell your parents because they may be a source of bullying too, and you, or you're just not ready to tell them. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's I can't express to you how devastating it is with these. And there's been two or three that I'm aware of this year. There was a, a man I went to interview a few years ago um, called Roger Crouch. His son uh, was 15. Um, and uh, had kissed a boy on a school trip, and someone had videoed it, showed it to them. He'd come home, everyone had called him names, and he walked out of school to the top of the building and then eventually threw himself off. And I don't even think he was actually probably gay, actually. His, oh. his mum's convinced he's not, and I met Roger, the father. They were amazing. And a few months after that, Roger took his own life as well, the father, leaving the, the wife and, and the daughter without their son and their, and their father. And it's an issue for straight people. It's not an issue for gay people, really. These are mostly the kids of, of straight people, yet... The media won't talk about it, and it drives me insane. I think, I suppose it's, uh, in a way, there needs to be fluidity and flexibility around what we're supposed to be as human beings, because it's only, I suppose, you like that you imagine, oh, right, this is what I'm meant to be. I'm meant to be this, and I don't feel like I am that. And like that, well, so I that's where it begins. Whereas if it's like, well, don't worry about that, and a lot of these ideas are works in process, progress, no one really knows what you're supposed to be. Well, I think there's a kind of phobia that comes from our own experience because I can only have my experience, you can only have your experience. You can't really live in somebody else's body or mind. And the media and the world is mostly run by straight white men, and nothing against them all. I love many of them. But I think they just don't look out of their their experience. There's you know, been no reason to. In yes. fact, it's been detrimental. I mean, power is compromised by so yielding. You know, it's like power has had to necessarily be in a safe. Like you talked about colonialism, and a lot of it, these are old ideas. The colonization happens not only in land, but prim- like, you know, perhaps primarily in consciousness. We're colonized in our minds. Like, this is what we're supposed to be. And I suppose it's like we need freedom and fluidity there. But, you know, no, whose power is it you're challenging? by saying my kid might grow up in this direction, that direction, who knows, but whatever it is, I'll I'll take it as an expression of some essential self that's trying to be realised and not like, oh, don't go that way, you're meant to be a bit more like this. You know, like the imposition of an erroneous narrative, whether on a country, a culture or an individual, is going to create trauma because if the person isn't that, then they're fucked. Yeah, it's about control, isn't it? Controlling people and, and just allowing people to be who they are. And supporting people is hard. I mean, it's hard. It's it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to understand other people's experience. It's hard for all of us. And Where do you get a bit a prejudiced thing. then? Is there like say like you know? Is it, is this is it something you feel you're tackling? Is there sort of like are there areas within I don't know gay rights where you think oh, I can't be asked with that bit, or like other areas of other areas of your life where you think oh it's something I'm still tackling? Well, I've been promoting my book, and I mean to be honest, one of the things I've had is just trying to get people the media to talk about the book because because most most media doesn't doesn't want to talk you about it. You think they would not, now? You think you think they would, but. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about the, the fact that so many of us are struggling with these problems. And if you, there's a whole chapter at the beginning about all the celebrities, and there's so many of us, you know, that have struggled with drugs and alcohol. But, you know, Elton John, George, George Michael, Boy George. There's lots of people I've known over the years. You know, there's a DJ who um, died from you know, drugs binge. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's too many to even mm. count. So it's about just saying, look, I don't think the way it's going is working out. 
And I think these are the reasons why, and these are the things you can do about it. And ultimately, it's about really finding a sense of community and really helping each other. And also, you know, letting straight people help too, especially when it comes to kids in schools, because I don't think we necessarily have the power to change things in schools. I think straight people need to do that. You're right about that, building bridges. I mean, of course, the, uh, like any community that, ident that identifies in the way that the gay community, LGBT community traditionally has, obviously will vehemently fight for autonomy. But I feel that bridges back for, like, if there aren't bridges back for people, it's really hard. Like, well, I think, like, when you sort of think that when people have been bigoted or prejudiced, if then people are like, oh, right, sorry, what did I do wrong? That's what you, yeah, come on come back it'll be all right you know like it's, i think it's very important to have a kind of a, a fluidity and forgiveness well one thing um that i see a lot when i go i've been going around the country doing talks at universities and shops and things like that is i talk about the fact that we're often we're not very nice to each other on apps and not on social mm. media and stuff and that really resonates with people one guy came up to me and said that he spoke to somebody where he lived saying you know just trying to make friends on an app it was on grinder which is a very popular app with us and the guy came out and said to him, why, why, the, why the F would I speak to a fat? See you next Tuesday like you. There's that kind of thing. I have a friend of mine today sent me some messages where he's HIV positive and fairly open about it. And the guy was, you know, having a go at him about that. You know, I think it's about all of us, everyone in the end of the world, being nicer to each other. It's really quite simple at the end. Yes. If you, if you, like I said, if you make peace with who you are and you, you, we can all be kinder to each other. I see so many people talking on social media you know having a go at other people this person's done this this person's done that donald trump this that and the other next minute slagging people off the way they look the way they behave different things and it's all part of the same thing isn't it ultimately i agree with you matthew todd that we ultimately have to look inside ourselves for where our own shadow is where our own hatred is where our own pain is and when we can negate, surrender, forgive that, then it's possible to have a kinder and more forgiving and loving society that's beyond tolerance, it's mm. sort of into acceptance and openness and then a willingness to understand things that that you don't perhaps initially understand and to know that you don't know. Hey, cheers, mate. That was a brilliant podcast. Thanks. Thanks. By Matthew Todd's book, Straight Jacket and uh, How to Be Gay and Happy, forwards by John Grant. It sounds like it's a good book to me. This show was sponsored by me and my rebirth tour. Remember, you can see me in May in Southampton on the 2nd, Woking on the 3rd, Oxford on the 10th, or June, you can see me in Aylesbury on the 6th, Watford on the 7th, Skegness on the 15th. And what did I miss out there? Southport on the 23rd of May. Oh, that's an important one as well. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. Go and uh, subscribe to this show and uh, review it with a bloody lovely... Um, review if you would remember the show was sponsored by some socks from bombas bombas offers premium thoughtfully crafted socks which customers overwhelmingly claim have improved their life more than a connection to an actual deity or a conception of an afterlife some people have said that they're the most comfortable socks they've ever worn they also say better yet for every pair of socks that bombas sells they donate a pair to those in need they've donated two million uh, pairs so far see what a big difference this article of clothing can make go to bombas.com forward slash brand and get 20 percent off your first order your love Bombas socks or your money back guaranteed.